This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, including a copy of The Myths of Creativity, check out audibletrial.com lead. This is Sean Hunter. You're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? So I'm Sean Hunter, and well, what I do, my day job, is I'm an executive producer for Leadership Solutions for Skillsoft, and so to that end, I travel around the world with colleagues, and we track down really interesting people, people who uh, are on the edges of innovation or leadership or management. Sometimes they're researchers or scholars. Sometimes they're executives, you know, people in the trenches doing it. Um, and we interview them, and we ask them all kinds of different questions about the how, what, where of what they do, and then we document that content and publish it for Skillsoft. But I also coach soccer and uh, live in Maine, and uh, I've traveled a little bit, and uh, and we're here to chat about this book. I was going to say, you were being humble up until then. We're here to chat about Outthink, How Innovative Leaders Drive Exceptional Outcomes. Uh, it's it's a really solid book. It's also you know it's a Josie Bass book. I'm a little biased. You know, there's a little bit of, of co-imprint uh, nepotism going on, but it's it's a solid read too. I was excited to pick up a copy of it. Um, I guess my first question to you is is what led up to all of this? What led to the decision to write a book and then even to write this book? Well, I I was first an entrepreneur. I did not set out to 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 write a book or talk about these kinds of ideas. In fact. The the ideas were kind of ancillary to the whole entrepreneurial process. My father and I started a company, and the company was basically about taking subject matter experts and delivering them at a distance to distant audiences. And this is back in the '90s. You know, this we were using satellite technologies at the time, and so we were entrepreneurs trying to grow this business consistently over time. And then, w- lo and behold, here comes 1998, 1999, and Broadcast.com, Mark Cuban's company, and he says to the world, I, I swear we can stream live video over the web. And so at that point of inflection, we had all this video content. We took it online. We built learning management systems to make it accessible. Somewhere along the way, I started paying attention to what all these people were saying. I actually started listening <laughs> to these experts and, and researchers, and I started blogging about it. And probably like many people in the early 2000s, you know, I thought, well, if I just start a blog, you know, people will flock to read, you know, hang on every word. And of course, it was crickets. And nobody, nobody paid attention to what I was writing at all. But it, it had an interesting side effect. The side effect was that it gave me the discipline to keep writing and keep writing and keep writing. So really, the, the blog had a totally unintended uh, uh, purpose, and what it really did was it made me clarify my thoughts in a co- cohesive kind of manner. And, so, and then uh, after a few years of writing, I put this thing together. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I hear in that something I resonated with myself. With After you finish writing a book, people ask you, how did you write a book? And there, to me, the real answer, or how did you get to write a book? And to me, one of the real answers is exactly what you said. You write a ton before that. And then eventually, as you refine the craft, you can sort of get into it. But I'm also curious about how this particular subject matter 
that you decided on as, as the book, how this was the right uh, challenge to tackle? Uh, I've been really, really interested in how in organizational culture and how leaders you know, create outcomes. So, so the subtitle here is, is Innovative Leadership. And in fact, I mean, it could on some dimension be a misnomer because as, um, what is this quote from Voltaire, uh, common sense is not so common. And that is to say, I mean, when you read this book, probably in your reading and many people's readings, maybe some of the findings or the research is provocative or eyebrow raising, that kind of thing. But the actions, the pragmatism of what these people are doing, it's not so jaw dropping. It is on one dimension kind of common sense. And so I got drawn to, well, what is the delta between those leaders who understand these practices and behaviors, but they're not doing it? And why are they not doing it? Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things I think is to, to, to build off of that Voltaire idea, one of the things I think was amazing that, that I kept thinking of in, in reading it is that so often leadership is not uh, complex. It's actually really simple. It's just because it's so simple, it's actually sort of hard. You feel like it should be a lot harder than it sort of is. And, and keeping it simple is, is what becomes the really hard part. Totally. That's it. That's it. I had this interview once with this guy who's the chief operating officer of this great big organization. He was down in Australia. And I said, oh, okay, well, everybody in the organization says you're this phenomenal level five leader. Well, what do you do? You know, how do you spend your day? And he said, well, I, I, I don't close myself behind boardroom doors. You know, I get out in the field a lot. I listen deeply to my colleagues. I facilitate the resources that, that they need. I, I travel quite a bit in the different operating units. I give them, you know, the discretionary autonomy to make their own decisions. And I'm thinking to myself, well, duh, you know, of course, you know, of course you're a remarkable leader, but none of this is brain science. The next day, I go to Melbourne Business School and I'm, I'm interviewing this woman on the faculty there and I tell her this story, you know, about the, the chief operating officer who does all these things. And I said to her, I said, you know, this is not, this is not remarkable. And she looked at me and she said, what's remarkable is that he's doing it. He's doing it. That's the remarkable piece. Yeah, no, totally agree. And it, it seems like it, we want to make it more complicated. And when we make it simple, it's actually sort of counterintuitive. Like I, I love the, the chapter. I, I should probably uh, chapters and books are, are sort of like kids where you're not supposed to have favorites, but you kind of do. Uh, the, the chapter that I really resonated with is, is potentially one of the more counterintuitive ones, but it's also quite simple, which is you talk about the role of sort of inquiry. And that it's less about having the right answers and more about having the right questions. Tell us a, li a little bit more about that idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this great quote from Einstein, right? If you had a, an hour to solve the problems of the world, you'd spend 59 minutes uh, trying to f di dissect what the problem is and one minute solving it. So you want to go as far upstream in your inquiry as possible. That is to say, you want to go to the, to the source. Um, there's this great study I, I read recently. I had an interaction with Adam Grant. Adam Grant, you know, he's this wonderful guy. He wrote this book, Give and Take. I met him down in Philadelphia, and I was, I, I was reading his book. He was telling me about this uh, guy from the University of Texas. His name is Jen, James Pennebaker. And what he would do with his classes is he would, th these are like freshman classes, they're just assembling. For, for the first time, he would divide them up into groups, okay? Groups of, 
you know, a handful of students. And then they, they were invited to chat about anything they wanted to. So they'd wind up talking about where they're from and what they're studying, the name of their dog, and, or whatever. They'd make small talk. At the, then afterwards, he would ask each person around the table uh, a couple questions. Uh, number one, how much do you estimate each person at the table talk? Number two, uh, how much do you learn? from people around the table. And three, how much did you like your group, right? How much did you like your group? And consistently, <laughs> what he discovered is those people who talked the most, who did most of the talking, they claimed to have learned the most, and they claimed to like their group the most. This is a little study he called the joy of talking. And so it's this counterintuitive thing when, in fact, if you can just be quiet, ask some provocative questions, in fact, you can draw out those people around you, and they'll wind up even liking you more, too. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that idea about what's remarkable is that he's actually doing it, right? Because when, especially when you arrive at your first or even your second, third, fourth, as you move up the hierarchy leadership roles or and ultimately into senior leadership, it's really tempting to feel like when people come to you, you're supposed to have the answer, Right. Instead of you're supposed to ask them the right questions that help them get there. And it's amazing when you actually it's really hard. It's simple, but hard to silence that little inner pride that says I'm supposed to have the right answer and to actually to admit you don't understand it all. And but when you do, you learn so much more about the problem, even even on a personal level, when people ask you, like, are you familiar with whatever? And you and most people, the answer is like, yeah, you know, I, you know, I read a little bit online about it, et cetera. If you walk in and you actually say, well, not really. I read your Wikipedia entry, but I'm not all that familiar with what you do. You learn so much more about the person, right? Or the company or whatever it is. Yeah, now, I, I should say that doesn't apply in a job interview. But other than that. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the ability to craft and ask provoc provocative questions is extraordinarily valuable and important. And in fact, uh, many times at the higher and higher executive levels, suggestions become orders, as you know, you know, suggestions become interpreted as, oh, well, you know, so-and-so suggested this, therefore we need to do it, when a no, and in fact, it's indeed just a, a, a suggestion, a curious kind of suggestion. So leaders, particularly at the upper echelons of power, need to be quite cautious about the kind of role they, they take and, of course, give that discretionary decision-making autonomy to those around them. It's a simple kind of thing. It makes perfect sense, you know, hire people smarter than you and give them control, but it's difficult to execute. Mm, yeah. And what, what are the other things I, and to make a bit of a transition, noticed that is, is simple, difficult to execute, and actually you touched on it a bit with the joy of talking study, is this chapter you have on, on collaboration and the importance of collaborating to innovate. It's one of those things that's sort of simple, right? The more, pe the more people you get on a problem, the more likely you are to find the answer to the problem, push it forward, be more creative, have more innovation. And yet, I feel like, I don't know if it's something in the water in most organizations or, or what's water cooler maybe, but as they get bigger, it becomes harder and harder to collaborate. How, how do we, how do those innovative leaders actually help inspire that collaboration more often, especially across different domain sectors? Or, or one of the things I'm learning, floors can be an incredible barrier to collaboration. Well, a number of different organizations you know, are playing with space. Right. Simply, simply the architecture and the space and the environment that they put people in and they encourage people to get up and, and move into social environments. You know, famously, like the placement of 
sitting rooms and chatting areas and bathrooms and where they're located just to escalate the level of, of interaction among people. But indeed, our ability to, to collaborate across cultures, across boundaries, outside of our own silos accelerates our innovation. In the book, I talk about this guy, Richard Nisbet from the University of Michigan, who did these really wonderful studies, cross-cultural studies, about how uh, Asians, particular the, particularly the Japanese and Taiwanese, literally see the world as opposed to their American counterparts. So in the, in the study in the book that I explain is he took a whole bunch of his uh, students and he showed them a series of photographs, like photographs. There was a focal point in a context. So it would be like a jet flying over the mountains. It would be a cow in a pasture. It would be a, a tiger in the jungle. And and he asked the kids to look at these photographs. But before he asked them to look at these photographs, he would hook their head up to a machine that would track their, their eye movement as they looked at these particular images. And overwhelmingly, uh, their Asian counterparts from Japan looked predominantly at the context, the environment, the jungle around the focal point, while their American counterparts from born and raised in Kankakee, Illinois, or Walla Walla, Washington, or whatever, looked at predominantly at the focal point. Now, my point in explaining that, and the point I describe in the book, is not, of course, to hire more Japanese. The point is that literally across uh, geographies, cultures, demographics, uh, we all see the world differently. I mean, we perceive our environment very, very differently. And then when you can tap into that and sort of celebrate that, it resonates and you can build that in innovation into what we're doing. So along that, uh, along those lines of people seeing the world differently and the importance of collaboration, I, I loved another concept. It might be sort of familiar uh, to some people. It might be totally new concept to some people, but it's the idea of borrowing brilliance through mashups. So it, it, for those that might be listening that have never heard this term before, talk about what's a mashup, how do you mashup, how does that borrow brilliance, how does that whole thing work? There's a guy named David Cord Murray who wrote uh, a book called Borrowing Brilliance several years ago. And it strongly resonated with me because what he's talking about, of course, is that we are all standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, Stephen Johnson talks about this a lot in his writings. He's a great innovation and leadership writer. That, in fact, a lot of what we see in the world of innovation is, in fact, two disparate things mashed up, come together to create new value in terms of a product, a service, an idea that we introduce into the world. My favorite definition of an outthinker is uh, is from this an interview that I did with a guy named Venakesh Valuri. Venakesh Valuri is the president of Ingersoll Rand in India, and he was describing that in today's you know always on chaotic tumultuous go 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 economy, what typifies the most remarkable and innovative leaders are are three three characteristics. Three characteristics. One, the ability to look deeply into the con context and landscape of this big data, long data, you know, around us. The constant uh, tumult, you know, that's happening. And identify something 
things that are of value and use to us in our organization, right? And this is why it's so important to get outside of our comfort zone, why it's so important to go to cross-pollinate pollinate ideas and go to different you know, workshops and conferences and talk to different types of people. So one is the ability to identify elements of value to us in our work. Two, to conceive of that mashup, bringing them together in a new iteration, a novel, a novel kind of iteration that add, that adds value to the world. But three, and here's the the critical piece of the whole equation, is to be able to communicate that vision and lead a team to execution. Because of course, you know what you chat over the water cooler or on the back of the napkin, that's great, but it doesn't have any recognizable value until you start mashing it together and doing something and then showing it to people and then something remarkable remarkable kinds of ha kind of happens when you actually create new value and you demonstrate it you make the prototype you take the first step you contact some people you assemble the project people show up people will show up and resources will come in because they recognize that what you're doing has value basically people will join the train jump on the bus yeah, and and I loved I, I really loved that chapter not only because uh, Venkatesh Valari is a wonderful name to say, uh, sort of like Mihai Chiksent Mihai, but also because this I think for a lot of people listening the idea that ideas are combinations of of older ideas that innovation a lot of times happens when you take a an idea from a different field and apply it to that domain that's that's not necessarily a new idea even using the term mashup as an exercise to do it as a way to do it it's not a new idea what I love is that you took those three things you just talked about and, and outlined it and said. This is the mashup equation, right? Again, it's simple. And what's remarkable is when you actually do what is that sort of simple thing to do. Uh, it's, it's the difficult part, but it's the, key, it's the key element. Indeed. Totally, totally agreed. So uh, I'm curious because those are, those are sort of the things that really resonated with me when I was reading the book. When you were researching it, I'm really curious to see what was the thing that you found Beyond just the remarkability of people actually doing it, what was the thing that you found that was maybe most surprising or most impactful to you? Um, I'll, I'll answer that in, in kind of a separate question, which is or a separate answer, which is the early drafts of this thing were very rather deferential to all the different hotshots and gurus and executives we interviewed. So you know, I, I would compose chapters on these different themes about inquiry and trust and mashup and action and sense of purpose, et cetera. And then I would describe the various interactions I had with so-and-so faculty or executive. And the early readers and the early editors said, said to me, well, this, that's all very nice that you invoke the name of XYZ CEO, but we're not really going to know or care about the work until it's transferable to us as human beings. So the question is, who are you? Who are you? What's your identity in this whole thing? And so then I started weaving in stories, stories about starting the business with my father, stories about my mom's cancer, stories about our kids and what I learned from them, about coaching soccer, about all kinds of different very personal and professional uh, endeavors applying these ideas to my work in life and that's when and it in fact became real for me and then hopefully I, I think real for people who read it and encounter these ideas because I'm trying to show how you can in fact apply these ideas in your own work in life. 
Hmm. I, I think that's a good, uh, a great lesson actually for for aspiring writers or people who are writing. I know that I find it funny because that was actually a fight that we went back and forth with when editing my sort of own book was because I wanted to be that no 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 it's not about me it's about them right it's about the people who are doing it etc. But you still at times have to kind of make it personal and there honestly I think there's a leadership lesson in there. I think a lot of times you're afraid to step down off the podium and do simple things like giving an insight into what's going on in your own life. So often that, so often people don't do it that when you do it can actually be really impactful. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, when I sent a a note, so t- you see Tim Sanders uh, is a dear friend, wonderful guy. He wrote the forward, and I sent him a note, and I said, I said, I got this uh, uh, contract with we're gonna, I'm going to do this thing with with Jazzy Bass with Wiley. I'm really excited. Thank you for participating in the journey. And he wrote me back, and he said, I admire your courage. And I'm scratching my head. I'm thinking, what? What do you mean courage? I've been working for this. This is something I've been you know, sweating over, putting in labor and equity into this for, for years. Courage? I didn't understand the courage part. And then I started writing these stories that were very, very personal in nature. And then I got it. You know, I, I, I got it. I understood. I knew what he meant. Yeah, absolutely, totally. And and on that note, actually, let's shift a little bit from the book a little bit more to you. I want to ask you sort of our two lightning round questions, although you can take as long as you want. Uh, the first being, what are you reading right now? Ah, what am I reading? Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> I, have, I have in my hands here a variety of different books. In fact, as I look at it, they're, in, they're all nonfiction. Um, one book that has really caught my eye and I just did an interview with is it's a book. It's called The Humor Code. It's called The Humor Code, and it comes out on April Fool's Day, and it's by a researcher and a guy on the faculty at the University of Colorado and a journalist named Joel Warner. And it's called A Global Search for What Makes Things Funny. And basically, they're trying to break down uh, humor uh, across cultural barriers. And then he applies it to work and life and um, all kinds of different things. I got a big kick out of this. I'm also reading a book called The Telling Room uh, by Michael Paternini. And uh, it's a story about he and his family going to Spain and uh, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. And I also have just finished this book called Different by Young Me Moon. She's on the faculty at Harvard. And I got to tell you, it is, it is flat out brilliant. Not, not just the ideas, but the writing style that she has. It's so accessible, um, very provocative, but very personal at the same time. So that's what I'm reading. Yeah, I, I got to agree with you there on different. It's a fantastic book that that I see uh, coming up again and again. We were chatting offline about how often I see it coming up again and again. But it's uh, it's a really it's been out for a while, but it's sort of evergreen in the lessons that it kind of slaps you in the face with. So, so one other question for you, and I know that so the book Outthink is not your day job. There's this whole other company that you run, but I'm curious as to what's next for you for that company. Uh, also, maybe for you in a book on the horizon, if you're if you're willing to be courageous again. But what's next for you? Um, well, Skillsoft. As, so I'm inside this leadership solutions uh, unit at Skillsoft, and we're doing some remarkable things. We've we've actually just teamed up with Jack Welch, the man himself, to uh, bring some of his ideas that 
have been eternal and iconic and evergreen and put them out in, in courseware and video and curriculum to the world. So that's kind of a fun adventure. I, I continue to travel around and perform all kinds of interviews. I'm noodling over a, a new book. I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite ready to chat about it yet. You know, I, I still feel like this outthink thing is, is fresh. So I'm I'm doing a lot of talking about that and sharing those ideas. Yeah, that's that's the fun part about the whole thing is you get through this whole process and it's a bit uh, it's a bit addictive in the sense that it tears you apart and when it gets done you immediately like okay what am I thinking about doing next right and you have spent the rest of this time just jumping right to that sort of next book totally forgetting all of the courage it took to actually get personal in in the first one but yeah. Uh, precisely. Well, well, we'll be looking for that, but for for no by no means should you wait for it. Check out Outthink uh, now. How innovative leaders drive exceptional outcomes. It's a great read. Sean, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. I'm delighted for the invitation. Happy to be here. Hey everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab Podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.